The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our story. Here told today, by us. talking with Dr. Italo Brown. He's been on the show a couple times before he reached out. There was recently a very thought provoking, very moving article that was written that we're going to talk about today. It was entitled Why I Left the Boston Residency Program. It was written by a resident physician, Dr. Adelis. And in this article, he's very transparent and shares his story of his experience while training at a residency program in Boston. Dr. Brown, um, he trained in emergency medicine in New York. And while there, he worked as part of a, a union that would kind of protect and support residents that were going through similar circumstances. So he reached out, said it would be a really good uh, opportunity to kind of talk about how residents can see these issues ahead of time, hopefully avoid them, and if not, navigate these very challenging circumstances. So Dr. Brown, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, man. I feel like I am a regular at this point. Yeah, man, it's good to be here. Yeah, this, this article, man, it, it is uh, heavy stuff. It's, it's heavy. Yeah, I at different points identified more or less with the experiences that were shared. I obviously don't speak three languages, um, oh, no. so the dude like blew me away. That you know, his he's a stud background. Yeah, he's an absolute stud, and I, I mean, I just want to lift that part up and say, you know, in terms of just looking at what he comes to the table with as a clinician, the guy, he seems to have a ton of talents and abilities, things that folks as patients would look for, you know, in, ter- in terms of a caring physician, so. Yeah, and, and some of the story he shares in his article, so he's a uh, Haitian-American. He moved around a lot. He worked in Mexico as well as some other countries. He speaks three languages. And he talks about, um, you know, how he came to join this residency program in Boston. And he was excited because he's able to work with a patient population that was representative of him and his background and past. And it's it's heartbreaking to see how the tables had turned. So for for some context, I lived in Boston before I was even a, a medical student. I lived in Boston out of undergrad and, you know... The the first thing I have to acknowledge about Boston is it is uh, a beautiful, like the whole city is like this beautiful campus where learning is encouraged, where being a, a thought leader is almost the expectation. And so when you hear about the the stories of like, you know, very blatant racism or the fact that they have so much ethnic diversity yet gentrified neighborhoods, or rather, not gentrified, but really segregated neighborhoods, uh, it makes you think sec- uh, a second time about what the fabric of that city and community looks like. You know, Boston Strong is a real thing. As Bostonians, there's a a general culture to just, like, thrive as this, you know, isolated community that exists in a space where the frigid winters are there, the summer, you get all four seasons you endure uh, so many different cultural exchanges because it is an educational hub uh, and, and a cultural hub in general. And there is a 
a desire to have excellence from their athletics teams to their educational systems, uh, everything in between their policy. They are considered a model city for a lot of places. So to hear this man's experience out of this place that is supposed to be this educational citadel is definitely heartbreaking. As his story kind of starts, he mentions kind of going viral in a Twitter video around match day. He mentions that he did some writing and was featured in an article specifically talking about racialized health disparities um, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And he talks about how the residency Mm -hmm. program kind of reached out and um, pushed his work to the forefront. And I wonder the lesson in that, because, you know, you're, you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. Being too vocal as a medical student, as a resident, it can help you. It can hurt you. What What are your thoughts? No, this is a very um, complicated, complicated dynamic, right? Like, there are some folks who are in medicine now who never had to worry about that. You know, being vocal in a time where there wasn't social media was a very difficult and extremely purposeful thing. You know, let's say you were a, a activist and a medical student in the 90s, right? Like, yeah, I'm sure it could be polarizing, but it was almost more blatant. Whereas for this young man who used social media the same way that everybody else uses social media and his narrative became viral, uh, the danger is if you're a program, you're worried that this person either A, is not going to have their focus on the learning, on the didactics, B, that the social media presence that they operate may start to kind of infringe upon the brand of the program or the brand of the institution or the brand of the product that the program produces, right? Uh, I think the third major issue is they worry that if there is an opportunity to leverage that platform to some degree, the, the, the learner may no longer even need what the program Offers and so hmm. it then starts changing the the ranking. It changes the competitiveness. So that is a, that third that third point is very subtle. But I think those first two are the major reasons why uh, they worry. Now, is it dangerous? Is it a slippery slope? Absolutely. You know, we talk about things being posted on social media all the time. But I don't feel like you know this was that example where someone said something extremely inflammatory, or someone was using the platform to uh, you know push messages that were false or misinformation. This gentleman was doing something that was completely organic. Yeah, and, and the almost the opposite, it seems like that he was actually more valued and they really bought into his message and it's right. a message that they wanted to share so they kind of rallied behind him, which speaks right. to, it's a little questionable as um, someone who's in training, someone who is um, a subordinate, if you will, what role does the institution play? Because you're not being paid for those outside. He mentions very specifically he didn't receive, um, you know, any anything fiscally. He wasn't paid to continue because they continued to kind right. of produce and reproduce the things that he had written. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, as an institution, are are is it possible to be taken advantage of these exceptional residents who are having that social platform as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, it's probably happening at a much broader uh, clip than we actually are able to to capture. Right. There's hundreds of medical students with platforms 
upwards of 50,000, 100,000 people. And if they are able to use their voice and their platform for anything, the optics automatically go back to where they are working at, where they are training at. And so, yeah, yeah, that's that whole like good press thing. If you've got a resident who's a stud and the resident is, you know, doing these different uh, campaigns or creating content that is uplifting or somehow inspirational, that is something that patients pay attention to. That's something that other colleagues pay attention to and say, hey, I might want to go work there. The medical students feel invigorated at that location. Uh, they get re-inspired. And then students at other places are like, hey, I want to go there and actually right. train. So, you know, it is a marketing tool. It's a, it's it's the cheapest form of marketing. You don't have mm-hmm. to put any effort into it. In fact, all you have to do is collect the benefit of somebody else sharing their, you know, hard-earned narratives and uh, the the sweat equity that they've created. So, you know, we have to acknowledge that and call it what it is, man. It's it's their way of of getting a discounted marketing campaign or strategy for for growing their brand. And for me personally, recognizing that fact, it's and again, you know, I'm not judging anybody else. As an attending physician, I work with residents. I intentionally do not include them in any of the content that I produce online. I mean, I'm the only really take pictures like Facts. that. But for me, it is unethical because I mean, they're not really in a position to say no. Um, right. Sure, most people are like, oh yeah, it's cool. It's cool to be in Dr. Bradley's uh, amazing TikTok account. I don't have a TikTok. Well, I do, <laughs> but it's inappropriate for me as their attending that authority figure to have them featured in the content that I'm. Uh, profiting off of. So it's something that I've been very particular and in, in, intentional in, in avoiding. That's that's a good point. Um, so so this story, Dr. Atlas, he goes on, you know, he he matched at Boston and he was enjoying his training. He was working with this patient population that he wanted to work with. He mentioned, you know, he's speaking all these different languages. He mentions being used um, as at the institution as an interpreter. Um, even, you know, uncompensated. And then uh, things started to take a turn for the Red worse. flag number one. <laughs> Red flag number one. Honestly, for any of your listeners, if you speak another language, realize that, like, yes, it's great that you can use that for your own uh, acquisition of information. But once people are curbsiding you and be like, hey, can you, you know, translate this language? If you speak uh, uh, Bengali, uh, if you speak, you know, Tagalog, if you speak any other language that kind of may be obscure and folks are just like pulling you aside, recognize that that is wrong. <laughs> that yeah. is wrong. Absolutely wrong. He, he talks about something that you don't see on his uh, CV, that he is a neurodivergent person. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know what neurodivergent was. I had to Google it, um, and he wasn't very specific in terms of his neurodivergence, and I, I don't want to assume, but with regards to, to neurodiversity, it can include autism, Asperger's syndrome, dyslexia, uh, hyperlexia, ADHD, so a wide range of um, different circumstances. And again, you know, he's not specific, but he says there's something there, and he was not provided an accommodation, and the program used it against him. So. With your experience with protecting residents from different situations, when it yeah. comes down to having accommodations, like can you speak to to that? 
Yeah, no. So so this is a, a very significant point. And to some degree, you could argue that there is, is actually unlawful, right? <clears throat> because if this is considered, you know, some sort of a potential handicap, right? Or some type of maybe perceived perceptive disability. Mm. And there is discrimination along the lines of a disability and not having adequate resources for someone who could be considered potentially disabled. This is a huge violation, right? Um, these are the lines that sometimes the organizations that I've worked with kind of look at and try to see, you know, how is that a stretch or is this actually something that is supported? And there's there's precedent for this stuff. We can look for it. We, I mean, it exists, right? It's not something that is being fabricated. In terms of trying to, to I would say, not advocate for this type of a, pay, uh, uh, excuse me, this type of a student or, or learner, I think that the main, the main problem here is the institution has the onus. The institution yeah. has the onus of not just soliciting this information, but having policies in place to support anyone. And that's where you drop the ball. Because I imagine that there, the, the stance is, well, we didn't know that he had this. He kept it from us and blah, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, well, you selected this person as a resident. Right. And that first few months is complete orientation. And I remember my orientation period, there was a thousand questions asked to me. It was a thousand at questions. It was a thousand different checkups, offices I had to go to. I'm like, all of these different things and nobody and, and no one was able to uh, elicit this information or, or gather this information from him. I don't believe that. Um, the, the policy element is why I said it's also on the onus of the institution or the onus of the, the program to have stuff set up in place. Now, let's let me I had a. a colleague when I was in residency who um, had Tourette's syndrome. And it was one of the coolest things that I ever seen is this guy who was extremely intelligent and talking to him, it, it still felt very linear. And to see how our program made sure that, you know, it wasn't like special accommodations, but it was like, if you need anything, we have that. Yeah. And it was empowering. He often like refused to use any type of other issue or have any type of help. Uh, but at the same time, knowing that it's there and that there is support and that there are bodies that he could turn to if, you, let's say, for example, he was taking medication to control those symptoms and uh, the medication lapsed and he needed to have more, like he could go somewhere. Or let's say there was a situation where he was having outbursts more frequently than not and he realized that he needed to have more days in between. He could go somewhere and get that. Now, this particular individual uh, should have been afforded some sort of, uh, you know, policy-backed action that didn't that wasn't punitive, but was actually supportive and empowering. Right, and I think that goes for you know, as attendings, we need to make sure we're not enforcing that definition of a physician from fifty, seventy-five years ago. Uh, realize, you know, as we're coming to grips with standardized exams, don't really tell you who's going to be a good physician or not. Um, navigating Tourette's or depression or mental illness, you can still do that and be a good physician. Um, I think for residents, number one, and and 
we we do only know one side of this story. Um, we're not passing judgment in any way, shape, or form. Just having a discussion. If you have any of these, you know, you neurodivergent, you have anything you struggle with, protect yourself. Um, be aware of what rights you have as a resident. Make sure you're documenting different situations as they occur. Don't let folks put you on the spot, get you in a room, and you know, start going back and forth with questions. Protect yourself. If you need to have a third person that you trust, you know, invite them in when you're meeting with your program director or other um, officials from your institution, because we're so used to being students and begging to get into medical school, begging to to match, and you think you just made it and by the skin of your teeth and you're lucky to be here. No, it's a job. You signed a contract. You have rights. No, that that that's solid advice. I think that paper trail is the understated part is that we we have so many of these conversations and we treat them like they're just casual and not realizing mm. that there are greater implications for any time we have a grievance or discrepancy or there is one brought against us. And so that paper trail is absolutely essential. You, you could see in this gentleman's story like how stressful. Residency is stressful. And he was going through so much. He talks about the anxiety that he suffered on rounds and the medications where he was actively seeking treatment. And you start to see the snowball effect in residency where if you're a stellar resident, man, you can probably sell right through. You're good. If you struggle, eh, you can pick it back up. You can keep pushing. But if you struggle twice, three times, all of a sudden, you know, people start to focus on you and you can do nothing right. Comp, you know, bring into to the, the, the equation Skin color, sexual identity, sexual preference, uh, male, female, whatever, that can worsen that snowball effect to where you just can't win. No, it's the the mental wellness element of this story is, you know, it, it truly is heartbreaking because it's already difficult as hell to be a resident, right? We. I think that there are fewer jobs in in society where you are pushed to a mental extreme and a physical physical extreme at the same time, but given the absolute minimum amount of like resources and the minimum amount of like care. You know, just generally people tend to think of residents as like help. You are the help. Yeah. And you are the smart brilliant help, but you are still the help. Uh, and we have to really think about the mental wellness of our residents because over time that completely can lead to a sense of demoralization, right? They're just feeling beat down um, or punched down upon for that matter. Uh, in this case, what I really think is interesting is, you know, he's already got trauma from being different. Right. Considered different. You come into this environment where, you know, you, you speak multiple languages, you have an immigrant background, you are a person of color and you are there trying to treat patients from a spectrum of, of, of you know, cultures. But you're in a space that is almost like not like those cultures at all. So you're automatically being marginalized. Then. You have a health condition 
I won't even call it a serious condition, but there is something about you that other people may look at as, I mean, it may be stigmatizing to some degree, right? To, to say that you have this neurodivergence, that adds to it, compounds it. And then there's this belief that, oh, you are not performing at your capability. There are, you know, these reports that are swirling that, you know, you're just not cutting it fully and you're getting essentially blindsided in a degree by a lot of these different um, things being brought up. Yeah. That is absolutely, you know, the definite, I mean, he says it in the article where he felt like he was being gaslit a bunch of times. And I'm like, yeah, it sounds like there may be some gaslighting, but it also sounds like there may be a lot of discriminatory actions. And both of those are power plays, right? Again, bringing back the mental wellness part. It's like, if there is power being exerted upon you and you feel like there's constantly a pressure or a you know invisible hand that's limiting you, it, you go to sleep every night on edge. You wake yeah. up on edge. And, and I've seen it from uh, the, the side of attendings. I, I implore us on our, our colleagues is it, look at your residents and trainees um, and try to see things from their perspective. I had a, an incredible attending in the surgical ICU, Dr. An, who, you know, you get a crazy consult or maybe, you know, the, the ED consult chief or something crazy. Dr. Ahn would say, stop for a minute and assume that everybody's reasonable. So stop and assume that that resident is reasonable. Maybe they have something going on. Maybe they have a crazy family situation. Try to understand, you know, if you don't ask the questions, um, you you won't get the answer. And what happens a lot of times is for minorities in your programs, we are indeed the minorities, only a couple of us in the residency class, and we're probably going to be kind of quiet. We're, we're in a place that we probably don't feel that we belong. And that silence allows other people to create their own narratives. Oh, they're silent because there's a knowledge deficit. Um, they're, they, you know, they need to be more assertive. Um, maybe they don't belong here. And for minority residents, black residents that don't speak up, I saw this happen um, with some medical students when I was a resident. And we had some some medical students rotate on anesthesia, two black students, two white students. And, and the white students were just like chatting it up. They, they were just super comfortable. They were just talking about anything, fly fishing, whatever. Just talking. The two black students were, were pretty quiet, subdued. They didn't have anything to say. And I started to hear um, the different opinions in their performance on the rotation. And I had to say, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Like, right. you know, we can't just accept that silence and, and assign some weird, some random narrative to it. No. Um, and, and I, first time I saw that firsthand. So as black residents, medical students, you do have to speak up, advocate for yourself as attendings. Yeah. Don't let that silence go and, and fill it with your own narrative. Uh, I'll also add that uh, when you're a resident, and you feel that, there should be a safe space for you to share that information and to say like, hey, I think that I'm being, I've read through my uh, last few reviews or last few evaluations, and I don't think that this stuff is accurate. I honestly am not getting it. 
um, can we have this audited? Can there be an audit of you know comparisons between this person who's reviewing other folks and me? And, and let's find out if there's some equity in how this is being reported or whether this person has a true bias against me or an implicit bias, right? So you can ask for that as a resident. The the side of the attendings, we have to be extremely, extremely careful not to other people. And by othering them, it means like we look at ourselves, we look at people that who we were most like in residency and we're like, yeah, you know, I'm cool. They're cool. I like them. And then whoever's not like how you were in residency or not like how you expect the, the model of a physician to be, you other them. And then you start judging them a little bit more critically. You're like, oh, man, their presentation wasn't that great. Or, oh, man, they, their note is kind of, you know, lacking. Or, oh, they don't have the greatest mastery over the fund or have a great fund of knowledge over this material. It, you're being more critical subconsciously because they don't remind you of yourself or of your colleagues or the, the image of a physician that you hold or the image of a surgeon that you hold. So I... Um, I encourage our colleagues to just be a lot more conscious of that uh, that phenomenon of that the fact that it's easy to slip into that. Absolutely, a uh, uh, personal experience I had when I came in uh, to residency, I was you know doing medicine wards, and the University of Chicago man they were intense. They loved their internal medicine, and I wasn't ready. I got to um, the wards, I couldn't find my way around the hospital. My first day on, they were talking about delta delta gaps. I had no idea what what that was. Never heard of it before. So I was in over my head. You know, we have a patient list of, of ten patients. You'd admit you're running around, and the only reason I made it through that rotation, I had one attending. You know, kind of set me down, would give feedback. The first feedback was like, "All right, here's my expectation." Da, 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 da. It'll be great. Halfway through, he I got some more feedback. I was like, "Hmm." I think you're better than you're presenting yourself. I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't think that's good. And the third feedback session, he was just like, what the hell? And I'm like, oh man, like this is bad. <laughs> and there was days like, I mean, I had my notes out of order because we wouldn't go from room to room. Like we're going up and downstairs. The reason I made it through, I had a co-resident who was um, a, a black woman um, and she put the team on her back and she would be like, yo, Steve, Steve go to this she would like line up by patients. She would say, you need to go to this room, this room, this room, to go up the stairs, go here, here. Super awesome person. She was there holding it down. And wow. after that first, I think two weeks, I had a, a black woman attending, Dr. Peak, that came on, changed the game. I had somebody that looked like me. She was incredible. She, like, I don't know what I would have done if... I hadn't had those two people on the team. We had like an off service, like you go off um, and you have like a get together, a little um, happy hour. They went out dance or something. But the other attending was going to be there too. So I, I mean, I just straight up <laughs> lied. I was like, I, I got, I got something going on because I, I cannot bear to be with with that person that yeah. had had such a terrible um, work relationship. One of the things that had happened, I was with a senior resident. And I was putting in pre-op orders and I'm like, all right, all right, we're going to start, you know, prophylactic heparin and And she was like, well, well no, we, we can't, we can't do that. I'm like, okay. She's like, why? Uh, like, oh, he's a GI bleed. Cool. And I hadn't like signed any orders, right? We were talking and um, it turns out in like my last feedback, what had gotten relayed to the attending, that initial attending was that I started heparin on a GI bleeder. 
And so it's, it's stuff like that. There's there's not crystal clear communication. And unfortunately, people can yeah. automatically assume the worst. That ends up in your record, in your feedback. And if, like, like Atalo said, you don't actively kind of audit that and make sure you're headed the right track, it could come up to, to bite you and burn you in, in the worst of ways. Yeah, man. That's, that, is, that experience is real. And I think, you know, he kind of speaks to, in his uh in his piece this desire essentially of the the folks at his program that he came from like wanting them to see him as not just an equal but like as what he was you know he even has a quote in a part in there where they're talking about they didn't see they saw him as like a physician's assistant or something like that and yeah. I said, what? like you have a whole medical degree what you mean you oh see me as a physician's assistant you know like it's those microaggressions that he were was being bombarded with. And what you just expressed in terms of your narrative, uh, that's a microaggression. And it's it's really just a microaggression circus. And yeah. you're figuring out how you can best like navigate this circus and leave with as few scars as possible. And the more we kind of like make that idea malignant. In medicine, the more we see people have very, very bad outcomes, like, you know, actually committing suicide or, or you know, taking their own life or uh, leaving the field altogether, being like, I'm done with this. Like yeah. walking away from medicine or from surgery or from whatever the discipline is while you're still in training or immediately after training, because all of this is. It, it, it takes a toll. It takes a physical and a mental toll. And the brother that was in an article, you know, I could just feel the the frustration coming off the page. I could feel that there were lots of sleepless nights. And it almost seems as though, you know, in these situations, especially in certain specialties and at certain locations, having internal advocates and sponsors is highly unlikely. If you're if there's no one there to advocate on your behalf, and and this is kind of a nod to all the attendings who listen to your podcast that like maybe that's what you bring to the table is being able to advocate on the behalf of people and say like, look, you know, these actions might be too hasty. They are not going to seek an advocate. They may need one, you know, and you have to be willing to at least from a a very skilled stance, step in and intervene on their behalf. Because otherwise, the guillotine is going to take the head off. Absolutely. I'm trying to find, because there was an article I know for um, anesthesia residents, but uh, I think I just pulled it up. And it breaks down, I'll put this in the show notes, but it breaks down the disproportionate numbers. Dr. Uh, Bill McDade, he's the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the ACGME. And he helped put together this data that looks at the percentages of which residents are dismissed from residency programs. When you break it down based upon race and ethnicity, Black Mm -hmm. and Hispanic uh, residents are dismissed at a greater proportion compared to uh, white residents. When we are already uh, a minority in a small percentage, maybe 4 to 6% of residents. No, that's staggering but unsurprising information. And I'm pretty sure if you go across every medical specialty, it would echo the same thing. 
that the rates of being dismissed follow, you know, there's a clear a racial ethnic disparity there. I mean, water is wet. <laughs> water is wet. Thankfully, you know, so far for this gentleman's story, you know, he kind of put this out. Again, I don't know him um, or his his intent. I mean, it seemed like it was very cathartic. I could almost feel that in the way that he wrote this. Yep. Um, I think it definitely is a story for those residents that are, those medical students that are matching or applying to residency. You can go to a fantastic program and not be supported. It's something that we all need to see. We can't just pretend that everything's hunky-dory and it's a whole new world out there. There's things that you need to look out for. There's some things that I just wanted to bring out. One, um, when you all are in residency, for example, I, I'll try to think about something at every level. If you're a resident and you're listening to this podcast, make sure that you are voting your chief residents with this mm. stuff in mind because their job is to be advocates for stuff like this. They should be literally being down the program director's door to establish policies like this where students, I mean, not where, where residents can safely report these episodes. And if it is the program director, then they should definitely be going, having channels outside of the program, you know, to, to help the safety and the mental safety and the, what's the word that they'd like to use? The, uh, I can't think of it right now. The psychological safety of learners. Yeah. Right. So that's how you need to be thinking about it. Don't pick just the popular resident. Don't pick the person right. who, you know, seems to know the most and is good on procedures and and, and drinks, you know, IPAs or Mason <laughs> in their own house and stuff. Like, don't pick those people. Pick the person who's like, if shit is hitting the fan, like, I can go to them and they're going to help me to try to, like, find an advocate or will serve as an advocate so I'm not standing by myself. Yeah. The second thing I would say, from the standpoint of a medical student seeking residency, we talked a little bit about this, but you should ask the residents about their experiences, ask the tough questions. Make sure they don't sugarcoat the answers. Because you're probably not going to get this information from any person who is faculty during an interview. But you can get this from a resident and I would encourage you to talk to residents from other services at that uh, that particular uh, institution. So, say you're in emergency medicine, talk to you know someone who's in internal medicine. Talk to someone who's in the MSA. Like, hey, what's the culture like in the ED? Hey, what's the culture like in this particular area? If you're a surgery, you're applying to surgery residency. That's probably the most telling is when you talk to other services and be like, yo, what's their life like? You know, do you? feel like they're overworked? Do you feel like they are are advocated for? Is there respect? Is it so hierarchical that it's toxic? Like you got to ask these questions. And then for the folks who are fellows, you're not safe either. You know, fellowship. <laughs> no, I'm yeah. saying like, seriously, as a fellow, you could experience some of this at a next degree. And what makes it worse is you're closer to the end point. And so that carrot is being dangled with a little bit type of different tension. And so you can mess around and have somebody basically say, you need to stay in fellowship and keep doing research for years and just yeah. extend your fellowship <laughs> and never sign off for you to actually be a fool or have you covering other services that you know you're not supposed to cover. Yeah. Right? This stuff exists. Or having you cover in general while they don't do their job. So it, for our attendings, 
I've already given you my feedback. I just think that you should be actively tuning your antennas to pick up things like what's happening here. This is a resident who deserves having, you know, all the the equitable learning opportunities as any other resident. It's also someone who clearly came to the table with talent, like talent that seemed to be not what other residents had. And it just needed to be groomed. It needed to have the, the appropriate mentorship. And so, yeah, you don't have to identify with someone 100% to be an ally, to be a mentor, and to be a sponsor. That's where your greatest strength lies as an attendant. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Brown, um, thank you so much, one, for, for bringing this article to my attention, for coming in and, and help me kind of dissect this young man's thoughts. Fortunately, he was able to transition on to a, a residency in psych- psychiatry in a different state, different program. You know, I expect great things. Sounds like he's in a much better place and we'll definitely see, you know, where he comes. I'm sure this will, will continue to, to bear fruit in, in his life. You know, he, he is very explicit in saying that he holds no ill will towards Boston and the folks of Boston. He wishes him the best. But he's clearly glad he's out of that situation. We'll stay tuned in the future. I'm sure he'll probably just focus on residency. Take a little sigh of relief for a little bit if you can do that in residency. Um, But I'm sure there's more to come. Dr. Brown, again, I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise. I was fortunate to see you recently give uh, grand rounds to to Baylor. Remind me that the title of your presentation. Man, it was uh, The Elephant in the Room race and racism, how it impacts health and medicine. It was a a fantastic presentation. Dr. Brown does uh, make the rounds at different academic programs as well as some private uh, opportunities. If you would like him or if you'd like to have him speak at your your event, um, he's available at his website and his email address. Uh, Go ahead and share your your website. Yeah, man. best fastest way to reach me is just hit me up on either twitter or instagram at uh gr number eight vision great vision great vision if you go back i think to season two of the black daughters podcast you can figure out uh or learn how he got that (laughs) name uh no spoilers here but thank you for tuning in the black doctors podcast is a non-profit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen If you enjoy listening, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use all the help we can get. You can reach us at the Black Doctors Podcast on Instagram or at Stephen Bradley MD on Twitter or Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters.